that one's turned up in it. If you would open your Bibles this evening to Exodus, the 25th chapter and the 18th verse. Exodus chapter 25, verse 18. We're going to cover a verse usually gets me in trouble. So this, this should be a little bit of fun. Anyway, uh, we've been studying the tabernacle of Moses. We've got in with the offering that was taken up. That's where it started out. And he said, just bring what you've got. And they did, and it was a whole lot of stuff. It's amazing. A lot of people think there's only two or three dozen people walked out of Egypt and everything else is mythology. But somehow that two or three dozen people walked out of Egypt, they came up with several talents of gold at 75 pounds of talent. They somehow managed to come up with all this stuff, but uh, nobody seems to want to bother with trying to answer how they how they did that. There wasn't enough people to carry that much gold, much less uh, get it out there in the out there in the desert. So anyway, uh, we've been looking at the construction of the Ark of the Covenant itself, and we're going to look at the lid tonight and take a look at what it's got to. What it, what it says about it, we're going to pay careful attention to it because there's a whole lot of details in here that uh, really has got some neat stuff in it. Before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day, for your grace. For your mercy, we thank you for your amazing plan. We thank you for the different uh, pictures of your plan that you have laid out for us through the ages. And we thank you especially for this, for this uh, picture of the tabernacle that you have unfolded and drawn for us out of your written word. So, Father, I pray that as we open up your word, we'll give it due justice. We will honor it in the way that we should. We will be able to understand it properly and be able to apply it wisely, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are at the, uh, looking at what's called the mercy seat. Uh, if we, We're going to look at the word. The, the word itself indicates a covering. It's a kapareth is the word, and it comes from kafar, which means to cover. And so that's why you're going to see it translated as covering instead of mercy, mercy seat, like a lot of the translations have it. And it says in verse 18, because it's talking now about the cherubim. It's talking about the gold. First of all, this whole lid, if you will, was made out of one talent of pure gold, 75 pounds. And so this is just the lid. 75 pounds, 1,200 ounces, $2.4 million. That's just the lid. That's what it's worth for scrap value on today's market. Now that's hard to imagine, but that's that's what it says. It's pure gold, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide. Now it says in verse 18, and you shall make. The word make there is asa. It's a word for manufacture to make something out of something. And so he's saying take this gold and make something out of it. Two cherubim of gold. Now, <coughs> how long had humans known about cherubim? All the way back to the garden, right? What happened whenever the man and the woman sinned and they got ran out of the garden? Who was put there to guard the way into the garden? 
So they have known about angelic creation since the time of Adam and Eve. That's very clear, and it goes right. It goes back at least that far. So it says, "You shall make two cherubim of gold." It's interesting too, if we were to look at the derivation of the word cherubim, there is no derivation other than the word. It's almost a tra- it is a transliteration that comes out of the Hebrew. So it's not like you can track the very beginnings and roots of this. It looks at cherubim looks itself at the root of a living creature. That is different from human beings. So it's an angelic being and they are not humans. So it says two cherubim of gold. And the only reference before this in Exodus 25 was their function in Genesis 3.24. Where the two cherubim were there to guard the way to the tree of life. Now if you look at Ezekiel 28... And verse 14 and verse 16, you find out that one time Satan held this position that these two cherubim are going to happen. It says that he was the anointed cherub, the set-apart one. Anointed means set-apart for a special task, who covers or guards. So his job was to guard the throne room of God. That was his initial uh, God. Uh, that was his initial God and his or job until it says, till unrighteousness was found in you. So he was put there, he was created perfect. God doesn't make imperfection. He makes perfection to start with, and that's what he did. He made Satan perfect and gave him the perfect ability to choose, and Satan, uh, in his arrogance, chose against God and led a rebellion is what it amounts to. Now it says, you shall manufacture two cherubim and... If you track the word cherubim through scripture, you find out that they are witnesses, they are guardians, they have several different functions. In the book on the angelic conflict in the back, you can get a list of how they are presented to us in scripture. And he says, make them or manufacture them of hammered work. Now, them is the cherubim. Hammered work is the word miksha, M-I-Q. S-H-A-H. And it is used ten times in the Old Testament. Comes from a verb that means to turn something. And it is used. And the turning was done by hammer. So what would happen is that they would, to make a figurine or a figure, they would take this chunk of gold and they would start hammering on it. So it is a hammered work. And an interesting thing about it is that uh, it was the same way that the candlestick was made, the lampstand in the Holy of Holies. It was made of one piece of gold. It wasn't different pieces stuck together with super glue. It was one piece of gold, and it was hammered into place. Now, you'll find in there several times it says the work of a skillful workman. And you know anybody that can make something like this is going to have to be incredibly talented to be able to take a chunk of gold like that and hammer it into place and it says and the interesting thing about it because what was the what was the lampstand it was hollow so this is a piece of hollowed work if you look at it also it is it is used to describe a trumpet one of the articles of the tabernacle service was a trumpet 
that was made of gold, and trumpets have to be hollowed. So it is, uh, it's only used ten times, and when you start looking at it, this thing was hollow. That's why I translated it, hollow hammered work. And an interesting thing, how do you get hollow hammered work out of a solid piece of stuff? Well, it takes somebody that knows what they're doing. I don't know how they did it, but that's what it indicates, is that's what it is. Because that's what they did with the uh, lampstand as well. To be hollow, it's interesting if you start looking at being uh, hollow, usually it indicates that there's a need somewhere. So if they are hollow, then there's a need, something to fill the void that is found inside. Sounds a whole lot like people, doesn't it? There's a God hole, as many have called it, that there's a hole in everybody's soul only God can fill. People, places, things, events, none of that stuff will fill that hole. Only God can fill it. Uh, Solomon alludes to it in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an emptiness. It's a hollowness that, that can't be filled by anything other than the Almighty. And so it says of the, at the two ends... Literally, it says, from two of the ends of the mercy seat, the copperet, which is the covering. That's how it got to that literal translation there, that uh, LT, the literal or corrected translation. Now, <clears throat> the two cherubim were to be made out of the same piece of gold as the covering. So, <clears throat> they started with one slab of gold that weighed 75 pounds. And a skillful workman started hammering on this thing. And somehow, in the course of the, the, the manufacturing of it, he is uh, making these two cherubim. Now, the Shekinah glory would dwell over them. There's different discussions where these four-winged cherubim or two-winged cherubim and there's nothing in it, I've been back through it again, nothing in it really that indicates there's four wind, there are four winged cherubim on this, but frequently, like in Ezekiel 10, you see the cherubim that show up as part of the chariot wheels, and those have four wings. The seraphim all have six wings, but it looks that like, that scripture tells us, it looks like there's two-winged and four-winged cherubim, and here, all we see is a description of the two wings. So if there were two more wings, we're not told that. They could have had the other two wings down at their side with, the, uh, with two of the wings uh, extended up over the, uh, the lid or the covering itself. And <clears throat> some have suggested that some, some of these could be of this nature. They have the two wings down at the bottom that come together two wings at the top, which can make a throne ring, can make a throne. So that's been a suggestion that some have made that because where did the Shekinah glory dwell? Right there between the cherubim, it tells us, in the Holy of Holies. Okay, so did it make a throne? I don't know because I, I haven't got enough data to say yes or no one way or another. It's just that some have suggested that. Now, the propitiation of the righteousness and justice of God <clears throat> required witness by the angels who are an integral part of his plan, portrayed by being part of the lid. <clears throat> the lid 
It's called the mercy seat for a reason. It is a place of mercy, but it is also a place of propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy the righteousness and justice of a holy God. So with the lid on the covering being propitiation, pointing out that his, the Father's righteousness and justice had to be satisfied, and you have the angels as an integral part of that. See, he wasn't supposed to take a chunk over here and a chunk over here and a chunk here and then hammer these angels in or make them like they commonly did idols, which was to make a wax uh, figurine covered up with gold and then, then heat the uh, gold or the wax up and let the wax run out of it. It wasn't to be made like that because then they would have had to stick them on top of the lid. But this is the way that they had to make them out of one piece. That's the way that it was supposed to to stay now they were what do they do they're witnesses they're guardians that's the type of things that they do the cherubim were witnesses and at times guardians of his righteousness and justice from attack by the enemy uh, Genesis 3:24. when the enemy comes after the throne room has it happened before yeah quite obviously that's Satan would like nothing better than to bring God down from his from his throne, but they were <clears throat> they were witnesses. Now, what does it mean to be a guardian of his righteousness and justice? Uh, guardian means to ward off all the attackers for one thing. Uh, does God need them? Omnipotence doesn't need anything, does it? But he gives he gives various agents, living agents, the opportunity to serve him. And that's part of where the service comes in. Satan had the opportunity as Lucifer, the anointed cherub that covers, and he, he blew it. He, he made a mistake there. So <clears throat> being part of the lid indicated they too had a vested interest in the righteousness and justice of the Father being satisfied. Now that tells me some things right there to be made out of one piece. They needed to be able to come into the presence and to join up with the Father himself. They were made independent beings with the ability of free will. And that's very clear because God doesn't make him perfection. So you put Satan in the uh, throne room and it says till unrighteousness was found in you, making it very clear that he's the one that chose against him. Isaiah 14, we read and find out that... Um, the five I wills, and we know when he chose against him. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will sit on the Mount of Mount of Olympus in the in the recesses of the north. Satan knew what he was doing, and if you look at what he had, he had everything except Godhood. That's the only thing he lacked. He had it all. He had the wealth. He had the power. He had the prestige. He was perfect from the day he was barad created out of nothing until unrighteousness was found in him now the fact that they were part of the covering and hollow pointed out their need of the act of propitiation they had a need for that and this is found in colossians uh, chapter 1 verses 16 through 20 and uh Let's take that out and take a look at that. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. We'll just see what it says. Did they have a need of propitiation? We'll see, propitiation is satisfying the righteousness and justice of the Father. Reconciliation is when we're moved from a status of hostility into a position of peace. So did angels need that? See, because as we've talked about, and, and part of the parameters and rules of interpreting types and symbols, is you don't put forth a doctrine that is not found elsewhere in scripture with your types and your symbols. What types and symbols do is represent well-established doctrines. And just because it's not been widely known doesn't mean it's not a well-established doctrine. Colossians 1.15 And he, now who, who is the he? It's Christ. The whole context of this, this book. Uh, th- we'll start at 13. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who's the he here? Father delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, the son, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And he, this is the son, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, the son, all things were created. Okay, so did Jesus always exist as, as God? Yeah. God became man. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14. 1, so God became man. By him all things were created. This is katizo in the Greek, which has a counterpart of bara in the uh, Hebrew. He says, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Now, does that include angels? It sure seems like it, doesn't it? Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, and authorities frequently used to describe angelic ranks. So you're not reading anything into that. And it says, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So Jesus is before all things. His deity has always existed. It didn't come into existence with his birth in a physical body. It was already there. And it says, and in him all things hold together. He's a sustainer of the universe. Besides being the creator, he's the sustainer. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. If we read a little farther in Colossians, it's all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. So Jesus is the exact representation of his being. Hebrews 1, 2 and other passages. And verse 20 is the key here. Through him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Now you define the word all by the context. Does the context include angels? Yeah. Did they need a reconciliation? Yeah. It says having made peace through the blood of his cross. Where did this opportunity become real to them like it did to man? At the cross. 
It'd be offered like it was to people before the cross, believing the cross would happen. But when did it become, as they would say, effectual? Okay? All our sins were covered until the cross. That's what atonement is about. At the cross, the issue of sin was taken away because they were all paid for. It says, Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, when is this written? This is, this is written in the church. Things on earth, things in heaven, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, or authority, to reconcile all things has got to include the angelic creation. And that's based on a simple reading and rendering of the verse. So to say that these angels had a vested interest in salvation is, is not a stretch at all. Yeah, I think it is very, very accurate. Now, <clears throat> they were hidden from man in the sense of being veiled. But um, uh, the, the part of uh, the covering and hollow and hollow pointed to their need for the act of propitiation. The Father needed to be satisfied. The fact they were hollow is clearly pointed out by the use of the word hammered work to describe a trumpet in Numbers 10.2. Again, it's only used 10 times, so you have to figure out what does it mean. The same word is used to describe the lampstand, which was hollow to contain the oil. The lampstand is another study all to itself because it was it too was made of a talent of pure gold. You see people pick up the menorah, you know, and they walk around with the menorah and all the, all the seven candles are lit and they're doing that. This was made of 75 pounds of pure gold. So if you're getting ready to pick up a menorah, the one that was in the holy, holy place, and walk around it, it's going to take two hands and three boys to help you with that thing, move it from point A to, to point B. The same word is used to describe the lampstand. Angels also had their need to learn the word of God to complete what was lacking in their faith. See, because the angels didn't know it all from the beginning. They were genius in comparison to us, but they were not omniscient. So they were there to learn. What was a, what was a, a priest of the holy place supposed to do in the, in the throne room of God? He was a teacher. He was a teacher. Priests are always supposed to be teachers. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 is an example, says... As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your faith, or see your face, and we may complete what's lacking in your faith. Church at Thessalonica, one of the first churches Paul set up, they were saved. He was there three weeks. They ran him out of town. The Jews did. They ran him out of town down to Berea. And so he was wanting to come back, and he was writing these letters to the church at Thessalonica. Why? Because he wasn't with them long enough. I want to teach what is lacking in your faith. Give you the information you need. 1 Peter 1 verse 10 to 12 says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. Now you you got to just back off and chew on this one a little bit. The prophets... Coming to you, who, the church, made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time 
the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He's saying the prophets they would go through and read two, two chapters just stick out boldly. The first one's Isaiah 53 which is about a, a suffering servant. Messiah who would suffer and die. A most ignominious death. An awful death. And it was prophesied in Isaiah 53. Well the the, the Jews went through and they read that. And the prophets read that. And they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it fully. And then when you get to chapter 60 through 66 of Isaiah, it's the conquering king. So they couldn't figure out, because there had to be a time that Messiah died, and then there had to be another time whenever he came and conquered. Because they accepted both as true. And they couldn't understand how this fit together. Oftentimes prophecy has been described as being told from different mountains. And a prophet on a mountaintop could see the valley down below and the top of the next mountain. And maybe tops of two or three mountains down the road, but he couldn't see the valley on the other side of that second mountain. And that basically is what's going on here. What's there? The prophets of the Old Testament, age of Israel, they could often see things, but they didn't know what the specifics were that were down there in the valley. And so it says, what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, Isaiah 53, and the glories to follow, Isaiah 60 to 66, Jeremiah 31, uh, Ezekiel uh, 40 to 42. He says it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves. So what was revealed to the Old Testament prophets? Hey guys, Hosea... Uh, Zechariah, Zechariah, you're not serving yourselves. What I'm telling you is for somebody else. But you, in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And in this last phrase, and when you want to study the angelic conflict, you got to look for stuff like this. It says, things into which angels long to look. That sentence was complete without that phrase. It didn't need to be in there. And you find this all the way through the scriptures. The angelic conflict is like the elevator noise. The elevator music. You get in, unless you stop and really think about it, you don't know, you might know there's some music going on, but you don't know what song it is. And that's the same type of thing. You know there's something going on, but until you stop and think about it, you don't really know what it is. You, in the angelic conflict is the same way. It is the white noise, if you will, that is going on in the background. And if you stop and look at it, you don't even know there's a problem. A lot of people, I, I know of a, a man, missionary, that went to DTS and sitting in a class with a well-known professor and, and uh professor asked a question and he started to answer it and he said well based on the angelic conflict and, and started to go from that direction professor stopped him right there he says what angelic conflict he didn't even buy that there was an angelic conflict how did he not read Ephesians 6 our struggle is not against flesh and blood but the world forces of darkness in the heavenly places how did he miss that 
there's a struggle going on between God and Satan, and we find ourselves right in in the middle of this thing. So what is this all about? And you take the little bits and pieces found all over Scripture, and as with prophecy, a picture of what's going on behind the scenes starts to emerge. <laughs> Why in 1 Timothy 5 does Paul charge Timothy in the presence of, of God and the elect angels? What? Now anybody going through and read that thing back in the first century goes, I've never heard of an elect angel because they're never called elect angels in the Old Testament. Ever. But here's another little thing, another little piece that didn't even need to be in there. That God inspired to be in there. Remember we just studied 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God breathed. If, it didn't, if he didn't want it in there. It wouldn't be there. And if you approach the Bible with that attitude. If it's in there there's a reason for it. And that's what we're looking at in the tabernacle. That's part of what is so fascinating about it. Now. <clears throat> the one piece construction is reemphasized. And. This little verse, 19, it says, And make, one at, once again, it's asa, it is manufacture, and it carries on the force of the command. So this is all part of a command that God is giving to Moses. He says, one cherub at one end. Now, this is important because it means that it's coming out of one end of that slab of gold. And the slab of gold has got to fit the box that the dimensions have been given. See, so this has to be done. A skilled workman has to be able to do this. One end and one cherub at, literally, from the other end. Manufacture one cherub from, and notice I put in there this end. That's because the Hebrew demonstrative pronoun is, is not just at one end or the other. It says this end. So it is like that God is not just giving uh, instructions to be written down, but that God is showing Moses what he's talking about. It's like Moses getting a vision of this Ark of the Covenant. Because we know there's one in heaven. But it's like he's getting, giving Moses a vision of this thing. Because these are just a shadow of the heavenly places, things in the heavenlies. So it's like he's saying, okay, Moses, look. And didn't he say over and over again, see that you do it exactly like I showed you on the mountain. Not just told you, but showed you. So when Moses is given this, he's getting a visual. Now, is it in his mind's eye? How's it done? Did, you know, God could say, he didn't even have to do that. And suddenly, there's an Ark of the Covenant there. <laughs> he said, okay, Moses, this is what I want you to do. See, this end and that end. That's the pronouns that are used. It's like he's pointing them out to him. He says, at this end and at that, that end. He says, you shall make the cherubim. With, there's no uh, with here. It says, the covering, or the mercy seat, at its two ends. Literally, upon its two ends. So, it indicates that he is not just verbalizing directions, but he's actually showing Moses what he wants. Okay? That this an interesting uh, word selection here. Now, in verse 20, it says, And the cherubim shall have 
their wings spread upward. Now, literally, it says, and the cherubim shall be spreading, it's a participle that's used here, out to, which it's a dual for wings. It's word wings, we don't have any duals in English. We just put two in front of it. But there's actually a form in the Hebrew language, like for hands. You have yad, which is a word for hand. Yadayim is two hands. So there's a word, there's a way to say two within the word structure itself without adding another word to it. And it says, <clears throat> uh, shall have their wings spreading upward. Now, the, uh, and then it says, covering the mercy seat. Now, this word covering is not the same word used for the covering that we've just seen. This is the verb and it is the verb sakak, S-A-K-A-K. It's the first usage of this particular word. And it's interesting word. Its basic meaning is to block or to stop up something. And then we come to see it in Nahum 2.5 being used for a mantelet. Now I know all of you have a mantelet at your house for whenever you walk into war then you have something that'll stop the bullets. <laughs> okay, that's like what it is. It's a it's a netting that they used in the uh, ancient world back there, and it, it, of course they didn't have bullets, but to stop arrows, rocks, whatever it might possibly stop. And it's a it's a heavily formed uh, netting that is designed to stop incoming uh, projectiles. Um, that's kind of interesting because doesn't Satan shoot fiery darts? Is. Hmm. Anyway, it's a covering used in a siege to protect, called a siege net. It's interesting that this is this siege net to protect us is available to believers. Uh, Psalm 511, Psalm 91, 4, and Psalm 140, verse 7 indicates that this mantelet, if you will, this protective siege net is available to us. Just like putting our feet on the rock. There are all kinds of pictures in scripture. Like put on the full armor of God. But we didn't have that full armor picture in the Old Testament. So what happens? They knew whenever they go into battle frequently. The, the other people had this protective coating. This protective armor on them. And it says that hey you got it too. You want to be able to be protected against the flaming missiles of the evil one. And put this on. It looks at the angelic guardians because here are their wings spreading out, and it says basically forming a net. Oh, that's pretty. I think that's just pretty cool. They spread out their wings. Try and get something through that. Now, <clears throat> here they are. Uh, that's why I translated spreading it a protective net. Uh, it's. <laughs> See, these things just keep getting a little deeper and a little deeper. (laughs) They're so cool (laughs) to me. This same word is used to describe the veil that separates the holy place and the most holy place. The veil to the back of it. Now, think, what's in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. What's in front of the Ark of the Covenant? The veil. You know, the veil that was ripped 
at the cross through with the earthquake through the temple that veil that was back there it's also called a mantelet it's a protective covering of what the ark of the covenant when it traveled by the way guess what they did with that covering they dropped it over the ark ark was not to be exposed it was dropped over the ark as a protective covering it says uh, with their two wings over the covering it says and facing each other the faces of the cherubim are to be turned or shall be turned toward the mercy seat toward the covering now you see the translation that is here which says their faces each man to his brother they could have said it the way that they translated it here but that's not the way the words are because the word each man is ish is the same word used of Adam ish and isha the man and the woman each man to his ak, which is the word for brother. Each man to his brother. And it says, um, the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the covering, the lid. So we get a picture of the, the cherubim. They're looking at each other, but they're also looking down. They can look both directions straight ahead to see the other one and they can look down at the mercy seat and that's the picture in other words their heads are slightly tilted so they could see both both directions now <clears throat> remember that the tabernacle is a copy and shadow of heavenly things that's what the tabernacle is Hebrews 8 5 Hebrews 9 the two wings for ascent these are Wings that are that that take them up denote their role as messengers and servants of the Father and Son in glorified hypostatic union. What is their role? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to benefit those who have salvation? Hebrews 1 and 2. The protective net is their function in the angelic conflict, which is to ward off satanic attacks. Their function in the angelic conflict to ward off satanic attacks. Have, have any of you ever met your guardian angels? Guardian angel? Not that we know of. <laughs> maybe we maybe we have suspected a couple of times, but I think some of us have kept them working overtime. Is what I what I think. But they're guardian angels. What happens if their protective hand is removed? It's open season. Can that happen? How easy is that? God says, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What did he just do? He pulled the angelic guard. Now, after you get back, back in line, come and encourage your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Because he just told Peter he was going to fail. The... Uh, <clears throat> Ward off angelic attacks. How about Revelation 12, verses 7 to 10? That's Michael and his angels waging war against the devil and his angels. And the devil was thrown out for the last time. No more to return to heaven and accuse the brethren anymore. What about Michael, the guardian prince of, of Israel? When I, what about the angel in Revelation, along about the 10th chapter, that puts his 
right foot in the in the sea and his left foot on the land. Which direction was he facing? South. It's talking about from the position of Jerusalem. And you put your right foot in the mid and put your left foot on the land, you're, you're facing south. Why would he be facing south? Because the king of the north has just gone to the outside of Jerusalem and gone down and defeated the king of the south, and now he's getting ready to turn back and eliminate the Jews. Okay? And so, who takes his position there to keep that from happening? Michael. Angels are called in as guardians of believers more than one time within this conflict. Thus, they're called to protect the plan of God in that sense of protecting. Hebrews 9, 5 says, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Don't you wish the writer of Hebrews just kept writing? I mean, this is... <laughs> he, he gives us some great pieces to this puzzle to figure out what it is. But when you get there, oh, come on now. <laughs> Right through three or four more chapters there, we'd be just fine with this and explain a little bit more of it. Note these angels were caused to stand up because it's a slab, caused to stand up by being hammered into place. Thus they were manufactured. These cherubim are also referred to as men and brothers. So it kind of indicates there's kind of a human connection there. You put other verses together, like an innocuous verse found over in Revelation 11 where they're told to go and measure the temple to see whether or not it's the right temple or not. And then it says, uh, in parenthesis, angelic measurements are also the same as human measurements. And you're going, what? (laughs) For what purpose was that put in there? It's saying that standards of men and angels are quite similar. That's what it's saying. Very clearly. The measurements of the temple. So the measurements of the temple, because they're told to measure it, but guess what they're going to find out about that temple and the tribulation? It's not the millennial temple. Like the Jews would claim in unbelief. It's not that at all. It's something else. Why? Because it does not fit the dimensions laid out in the book of Ezekiel from chapter 40 to 48. Doesn't fit. So <clears throat> there will be a millennial temple there. But the one in the trib doesn't meet the requirements or the specifications. These two facts together illustrate that like man, angels had to partake of the propitiation, i.e. the satisfaction of the righteousness and justice of God and be reconciled to God. And that's the verses we just read, Colossians 1. Verses 15 to 20. Like man, they stand in grace based on faith. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Justified is what? Declared righteous. Okay. What about the righteousness and justice of God? We did not earn that justification. We were given that just declared righteous. We, it says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is reconciliation. So because of faith in Jesus Christ, we have been declared righteous, imputed the righteousness of God. And what does that do? We're no longer enemies of the cross. 
keep reading Romans 5. Where it talks about while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. <clears throat> we, he says, through whom also we've are, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 14.4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls and stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. See what happened? The, the angels were just hammered into place. Uh, and guess who Guess who hammered him into place? A man. One of the skilled workmen on the tabernacle hammered him into place. Who's the one that's able to make us stand? It's a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. See, that's... One picture after another in here. When you just stay with what does it literally say, you start seeing it even greater to me. It's just a, a more beautiful picture of what we already think is can't get more beautiful. <clears throat> They're caused to stand based on the place of propitiation, which is the mercy seat, which refers to the cross. In Romans chapter 3, Verse 21, And now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse, don't we? Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. That kind of gives a better picture of the Passover too, doesn't it? Were the Jews still sinners? Yeah. And the death angel passed over them because they finally managed to get one thing right. You think about that when they got the blood on the doorpost. That's one of the few things they got right in, the, in their early history. Everything else, they didn't. And if they didn't get that right, they lost their firstborn. That was the cost. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did in satisfying the righteousness of the Father, to put faith in Jesus, the Father says, boom, you got it. You are declared righteous. The imputation is there. You have been justified. Not by your works, by his works. Hebrews 2, 14-18 Since then the children shared flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through that death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, some people take that verse and say that God never offered salvation to the angels that fell. But that's a misunderstanding of the word help. The word help that is used here is used of a physical nature, what such a, we call it living grace, if you will. Angels don't need it, they don't need air, <laughs> they don't need water. 
They don't need, uh, they have clothing. I don't know that they need clothing. They don't have any of those things that we have to have to keep body and soul together. Here is a human being. We're a lot more frail. So he doesn't offer living grace to them. So therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. His goal, his objective to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The people could not satisfy the righteousness and justice of the Father themselves. But Jesus came to do it for us. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he was able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's us. You go on farther in Hebrews 4. We're not going to go there, but he he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Made like us in all things, and yet without sin. 1 John 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. And if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. See how many times it says that? And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Some people don't believe that he died for the sins of the whole world. Well, there's a verse that says as clearly as you can say it, he did. The word whole, by the way, is halos. It's not the word all, which is pos and its derivatives. The word pos can mean all of a certain subset. Okay, we could, we could be, uh, if if all of the church is, is here, of Trinity Bible Church, we could say all, but it's of a bigger subset. Of belief. It's just a small subset of it. So all can be defined differently. Halos is a global universal word that's used here. It's, it, you have to, you have to play games with the uh, uh, etymology in order to try and get it to mean only part of the world. Now, <clears throat> 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. You see, these, these passages are all beautiful. The word propitiation mentioned four times in the New Testament. And guess what we've just seen? We've seen where it's used. We've seen who did it. We've seen who accomplished it. And the fact that we can't possibly do it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we should also love one another. Hmm. Powerful statement. This part of the plan is veiled to men in time, but not unknown. Where is the Ark of the Covenant going to be? Inside the Holy of Holies. When do the Jews get to see it? They don't. For generations. Until the veil is ripped. Opening the way to the Holy of Holies. The, they, they don't get to see it. But they know what's in there. They have been told what's in there. They have faith uh, concerning what is in there. It's not that because it's veiled. It's not known. It's veiled because they hadn't literally seen it. In the same sense, we talked earlier about our uh, resurrection bodies. <clears throat> right now, they're veiled to us. We don't know what they're going to be like. What we have is a description. Uh, we know we'll be like him, 1 John 3, because we shall see him as he is. There'll be something about this body. And I, I love this new body. <clears throat> we can eat anything we want. 
we don't have to worry about sugar. You know, we don't have to worry about carbs. We don't have to worry about fats. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff. We can eat anything we want. We know the new body eats because Christ ate. Okay, made the fish for the disciples, sat down, they had a good meal. Sounds like fun. You don't have to eat, though, if you don't want to. Now, isn't that nice? Now, that's going to take some getting used to for most of us because we kind of enjoy that uh, sort of thing. But how about walking through walls? Now, what Jesus did, just showed up to the disciples after the resurrection. It'll be like Christ. How fast will it be? Superman will be passed in the dust. We'll be so much faster. How about Flash? I mean, not 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 fast enough. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. It says literally, give the covering. On top of the ark, upon the ark, from the top. <laughs> it's, it's very clear with these directions. Where does the top go? Not on the bottom. It goes on the top. <laughs> so he is walking Moses through this like he's a little child. He says, you're going to take this, you're going to make these angels on there, and then this is what you're going to do with it. You're going to pick it up, and you're going to put it right on top of the ark, the box that had already been made. <clears throat> and in the ark you shall put, and this is the word give. They, they like to take the word nathan, which is the word for give, and they like to translate it a lot of different ways because they can't. But the word inherently means to give. And so <coughs> I look at it as it's a grace gift. I'm going to give you this testimony. So the plan of God has to be followed, must be followed by Christ in hypostatic union. <coughs> this plan is going to be that what? He keeps the law. The two tablets of the law are in there. This plan also involves him being the bread of life. He's going to give people that which will sustain them forever. And the third part of the thing is Aaron's rod that blooded, that budded. He's going to come back from the dead. Back from the dead. That's his, the three elements of his plan clearly stated. Deity made the laws. God, man, obeyed them. I think one of Satan's accusations, <clears throat> whenever he fell and God put him on trial, we know he did because he, it, we have an advocate, which is Jesus, who is our defense attorney. That's what advocate means. He's our defense attorney. The accuser is Satan himself. So I suspect that he unloaded on God in the courtroom and, and called him everything in the book and said he was not any of those things that he says are are the attributes of God, not sovereign, not righteous, not just. And he attacked him with everything else. And I bet one of them, when we find out all the details one of these days, I bet one of them was, you can't even keep the laws you make. Would you think that might be a possibility? That he would make that accusation? Now, <clears throat> has anybody in here ever kept all the laws they made for themselves? Uh, no. <laughs> Comes around every year. You think, well, I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. Now, I'm not going to make any this year because I've never kept any yet, but I need to try again. The plan of mercy. 
See, this plan is a mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you're due. It's given in grace. And that's when you receive what you don't deserve. An integral part of the plan of God is the law. That's what he's telling us. Also given in grace. See, law is necessary to know what is right, what is wrong. And so that's why when God gave, the, uh, especially the Ten Commandments, but the whole Mosaic Law, when God speaks and says, do it this way and not this way, it's important that we pay attention. And he gives us the law in grace. In verse 22, <clears throat> he says, there I will meet with you. Now this is another one of these beautiful words that the English tries to, <clears throat> they, they gloss over. It is the word yaad. It is an appointed meeting. An appointed meeting. In Exodus 21 verses 8 and 9. It is used of a betrothal. To a marriage. Interesting. Early on in here. The, this is an appointed time. And it's interesting, the only usage of it before this is concerning a marriage. Do you think maybe God made an inference that maybe Israel could be the bride of Messiah? It's the way he does things. We don't have anything to go with it because he reveals things progressively. But this looks like that little bitty seed that little bitty seed of truth and somebody that's reading this or thinking about it or they heard this and they go, I heard that word before and it was used to talk about a meeting time for an engagement, an appointed time. And from the mercy seat, literally from above the covering, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all... Simply that I command you for the sons of Israel. That's literally what the Hebrew says. So that meeting place demonstrates that no one is going to come to the Father except through the Son. It's an appointed place. The meeting is based on the Lord's timing. Written out in Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he can redeem those who are under the law that we might receive our adoption as sons. Appointed times. There's an appointed time for the rapture, appointed time for the second advent, an appointed time for the unveiling of the Antichrist and the unveiling of the two witnesses. There's an appointed time for the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets and the and the pouring out of the bowls upon mankind. There are appointed times of meeting. And you know what? There's an there is an appointed time for the wedding of the Lamb. Revelation nineteen. You can just track this all the way all the way through. There's an inference to Israel becoming the bride of Christ. I believe that that's what this is. But that's not yet been revealed in the sphere of progressive revelation. We're only in the third book of the Bible. If you count Job as the first book of the Bible. That we're only so far along. There's 63 more books to be written. Over the course of another um, 1,400, 1,500 years. 
The foundation of the meeting is because of propitiation. What? That mercy seat. Moses is told he's not going to receive all the information at this meeting. Why? I will meet with you at appointed times. Plural. See, there's going to be more than one. So Moses, this is it for now. <clears throat> In Christ is freedom because he kept the law. These verses, Christ redeemed us, it says, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Note that meeting the Lord has to be based on faith in Him because of the sequence of the presentation of the tabernacle, tabernacle furniture. Notice that the, <laughs> this just hit me today. He starts with the most important part. This typical Jewish thought. They give you the bottom line and explain it. What's the most important part of the tabernacle structure? The Ark of the Covenant. So he starts with the Ark of the Covenant and then he kind of backs it out. See, because what's the first thing a person sees when they enter the outer court, the, the, the bronze altar? What's that all about? Faith. That an innocent victim is going to cover your sins. After that is the labor looking into it, realizing that you're still flawed even after salvation. The priest went in and they did what? They ate at the table of showbread. That's the intake of the word of God, which is all about who? The bread that came down out of heaven. They go to the lampstand and they trim all the wicks. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Notice what he just, he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Table of showbread. I am the light of the world. Lampstand. I am the great high priest, altar of incense. Huh. And then he's also portrayed on the other side of the veil. On the other side of the veil. The tabernacle starts with a goal of coming into the presence of the Lord. What does it take to get in there? That's where it starts, and that's the way it's going to develop. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so blessed. <coughs> To be able to look into your word and see the beauty of it. To see the way you've put it together. See the way you've arranged the pieces. See the clarity of it. The depth of it. And the intricacy of it. We're awestruck by what you have done within this writing. May we continue to be. And may we honor you in all of our thoughts, speech, and deeds. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>